Hi guys, welcome back to Elsa and Ria's Emergency Room Podcast. Today, we're reading chapters 18 and 19 of Deadliest Enemy, Our War Against Killer Germs by Michael T. Osterholm and Mark Allshaker. My name is Ria, and here's my co-host, Elsa. Hi guys. Chapter 18 is Influenza, the King of Infectious Diseases. It starts off with a quote from Bill Gates. Of all the things that could kill more than 10 million people around the world, the most likely is an epidemic stemming from either natural causes or bioterrorism. So this chapter focuses on influenza, and influenza is something that we all probably grew up hearing because there is a seasonal flu, which takes about 3,000 to 49,000 lives per year in the U.S. alone. So most of us usually get the flu shot every year because the virus mutates easily from person to person, and the high mutation rate and frequent genetic reassortment make it pretty dangerous to a lot of people. So there's the type A influenza strain, which causes pandemics in animals and humans, and it's categorized by the hemagglutinin and neuraminidase, which are two proteins on the surface of the virus. So the hemagglutinin uh, has the ability to bind with lung cells it comes in contact with, like a key fitting into a lock. And that is what starts the viral reproduction process. And that's a quote I took directly from the text. And so what happens is that once the reproduction process starts, there are thousands of new virions. And so they burst out of the cell and spread to other cells. So when we cough, we're basically helping spread the virus. And I remember in my freshman year of college, uh, the professor told me how, or told the class how the virus is making us cough because it wants to spread to the other person. And so the, the cough we have, it's involuntary and it's the virus's way of making us spread it to other people, which I thought was pretty fun. That's also something that Dr. Malone talked about last season. And the purpose of the neuraminidase is to allow these rayons to escape the cell and basically help it spread to other cells or other people. And so there are a lot of antiviral drugs that can help fight against the influenza strains, and some of them are Tamiflu and Valenza. So viruses are sorted or categorized by their HA and NA parts, um, and so we can shorten the HA and NA names. For example, there's H3N2 or H1N1. And there are 18 type A HA subtypes and 11 NA types. And so there are possible 198 possible combinations. So we always hear about the human influenza virus, but it doesn't naturally occur in humans. It's actually all bird flu. And this is backed up from a quote from John Barry, who wrote The Great Influenza. The first thing to understand about influenza is that it's all bird flu. There's no such thing as a naturally occurring human influenza virus. And so basically what he's saying is that the primary reservoir for type A influenza is the wild aquatic birds. And so that's like your geese, your ducks, etc. And so animal viruses don't usually spread to humans that easily. 
but it can spread to other species within the animal kingdom. For example, uh, domestic birds such as chickens and turkeys can spread it to dogs, cats, horses, pigs. So, pigs are really good at spreading and infecting humans with avian influenza viruses, and that's because of their lungs. Because their lungs have receptors that match up with both birds and human viruses, and so they basically can mix and match and be like a breeding ground for these new influenza viruses. And so unlike Ebola or another plague, which maybe will happen, the pandemic influenza will happen because it's always evolving and it's always mutating so that the human body doesn't always recognize it. And so it's something that we have to keep fighting against. And yeah, I thought it was crazy how from everything that we've talked about thus far, you know, it's always come back with uh, Osterholm saying, like, you know, this is a problem. We will have a pandemic, probably. And not even probably, like, he always makes it seem like it will happen if we're not safe or where we don't take any protective measures. It's crazy to think that he says that for everything. But here is the only part where he specifically explicitly said he thinks this is one this one is going to happen. So that's kind of like that's crazy cuz if we thought all the other ones were going to happen, then what does that say about this? Like do you know what I'm trying to say? Yeah, like it's gonna happen regardless of what we do to stop it is how I felt reading that yeah especially with the state of things I guess or maybe at the state of things when he wrote this book hopefully now we're a little bit more prepared but or we will be more prepared next Dr. Osterholm starts talking about the 1918 Spanish flu um and we touched on this a bit in another episode but it's misnamed because it's not actually it never actually originated in Spain it seems to actually have started in the U.S. specifically in Haskell County Kansas in an agricultural setting and then because you know this was around the time of World War One um, it happened to spread to a neighboring army base um, which is now Fort Riley and then from this it traveled to Europe and you know the rest is history, literally. Um, and basically just talking about how bad this strain was, well, or, you know, the characteristics of it. So it was quite different than, I guess, what we're experiencing now with the coronavirus or with COVID-19. With COVID so with this, um, rather than claiming the old, the infirm, or very young children, or, you know, those with weak immune systems, um, this strain, the H1N1 strain of influenza that happened in 1918, killed off actually the strongest and the fittest, as well as pregnant women in disproportionately high numbers. And this is kind of like me paraphrasing um, Dr. Osterholm. But the reason for this was actually the cytokine storm. And we talked about this in another chapter, um, probably because we talked about it with I think we did talk about it with coronaviruses when we talked about those. But I mean, specifically, we see this happening right now with COVID-19. And, um, you know, basically what happens is it's an over response of your immune system in which um, a bunch of immune cells rush to a certain area. So let's say the lungs 
And when it rushes so quick, like it does, it ends up um, breaking through blood vessels and causing leaky blood vessels. So now you have fluid leaking into the lungs, which is what's causing, you know, your inability to breathe. Then also you're losing pressure in your blood vessels. So from that you have low blood pressure and then you're not getting um, the blood to other organs because one, low blood pressure and two, because your body's trying to form a clot to prevent that blood, prevent the leaking out of from the blood vessels. And so this clot can dislodge and then you have other problems like let's say a heart attack or a stroke. So it's really just this, this massive effect on the body that causes problems in so many different ways. And Dr. Osterholm says that today we are not much better at treating patients from dying from a cytokine storm than we were in 1918. And that's clearly evident with all the deaths of, from COVID-19. And, you know, I just have a note here saying I would hope that, you know, after, you know, this whole pandemic finishes, um, more research is put into maybe helping prevent cytokine storms in some way. Um, but it definitely is difficult because it's a immune response from the own body. So I don't really know how to go about that, but I feel like research is definitely needed. Um, I think one thing that's super crazy about this 1918 pandemic was the fact that this strain of H1N1 ended up um, being very fast acting in the sense where you could experience your first symptom, let's say at 4 p.m., and then you could have died by 10 a.m. That is just so crazy to think that any kind of virus could act so fast like that. Yeah, but I think that makes sense because of the symptoms that you just described because they say that you're literally drowning in your own fluids internally. So it must be extremely painful and has to suck. Yeah, but then you look at COVID-19 and patients take, you know, a few days to pass away, I think. I was just going to say, and some theories um, claim that it's not just the cytokine storm, but also this Brady Kynan storm theory, which is where um, Brady Kynan, I think, is similar to a cytokine storm. But I remember the specific part of the research in which they found um, hyaluronic acid in the uh, lung samples of COVID-19 patients. And um, hyaluronic acid is able to hold, I think, like 10 times its weight in water. So it's like when you have the um, cytokine storm and all that water is leaking through, that mixes with the hyaluronic acid and forms this kind of hydrogel, which completely blocks your um, alveoli from being able to receive any air. So it's it's kind of like jello, and it's literally impossible to breathe through like that. That's so scary that we still don't know how to treat it in 2021. Or, I mean, this was written in 2016, but... It's scary that we haven't really made any advancements. And that's probably because we don't put that much emphasis on influenza or, you know, because it doesn't happen too frequently, right? Yeah, but then also I think it's just because it's like, it's it's basically a good process gone haywire. Like your immune system is trying to do the right thing, but then it overreacts and then it does a bad thing. So it's I think it's difficult for scientists to try and figure out how to, have that system in moderation where it's like the Goldilocks, like right in the middle. Hmm. And I also think it's interesting that it's anti-Darwinian because it kills the strongest and fittest. Like, why do you think that is? 
Yeah, that's super strange because you would think that it's always just those with a weak immune system, which is also why scientists are confused of how children aren't really succumbing to COVID-19. So I don't really, I feel like maybe that's just one of those things where it's like, um, we really don't know at all as scientists yet. Do you think it's because in order for the immune system in order for the immune system to overreact, it needs to be good. And so if someone's immunocompromised, it's not like the immune system can overreact to go into a cytokine storm, cytokine. That's actually a really good point. That might be, you know, plausible. What's scary about influenza, um, similar to COVID-19, is that you're contagious before you even feel sick. So clearly that does not help with spreading. Um, some statistics, it seems that the worldwide death toll may have reached 100 million from this 1918 pandemic. And just to put things in perspective, COVID-19 so far has only had 1.91 million deaths worldwide. And therefore, the 1918 flu was actually the deadliest single pandemic killer of all time. That's a quote. Um and this means that it has to beat the bubonic plague, which we are taught as children to have been the worst, but clearly it wasn't. Um, to put this into perspective, more people died in a six-month period over the fall, winter, and spring of 1918 to 1919 than the amount of people who have died from AIDS in roughly the 35 years since that virus was identified in the human population. And what's scary and sad about this is that we put so much emphasis on aids and research for it which we should but something like a flu can kill a lot more people in such a short amount of time and personally i feel like we aren't putting enough emphasis on doing research for it. or maybe we are don't know about it but you know it's just like uh we mentioned in a previous chapter that a name like Ebola gets more attention than something that is slow acting, but a lot more deadly. And I think what's really sad is the fact that we know that this problem is reoccurring. And even if the research isn't really panning out, we could still do a lot more to be prepared in case a pandemic comes along. And at the point of when this book was written, there wasn't much being done. It's something that we need to definitely put more emphasis on. Hopefully, this recent pandemic that we're in right now will help people realize that it is really bad and it can have a very lasting impact on all of human life, not just on the individual. So a lot of people died from the cytokine storm, but... A lot of people also died from a secondary infection due to bacteria invading and infecting the lung. And this was easy for the bacteria because the initial flu virus, it destroyed the protective epithelial cells that lined the breathing passages. So basically the bacteria could just move in without too much resistance. And so the total death toll is both from the virus and from the bacteria, but it wouldn't have happened most likely if it weren't for the initial virus. And so because it was from the initial virus, the antibiotics, if they had any, wouldn't have worked. Basically, it was just like the perfect storm of things. And because the population is currently 
three times more than it was in 1918 to 1919. And because of the way we are growing our produce and because of the mass production of meat and poultry, it's just more likely to happen and probably will happen on a bigger scale. Yeah. <laughs> so it's, and it's not like we have more resources now than we did in 1918. I mean, perhaps we do, but COVID-19 made it evident that we aren't really prepared to fight something on that level. And so it's just very scary to think about. And then there was also another influenza pandemic that happened in 2009, but, you know, obviously it wasn't to the scale of anything like um, 1918 or even today, even though today isn't an influenza pandemic. But um, what's interesting about this pandemic was that the victims tended to be pregnant women, obese individuals, those with asthma, and with certain neuromuscular diseases. So in this case, we're seeing that it is like, you know, what we would consider people who are weaker. So from this, scientists realized that there are usually two specific distinct patterns that influenza viruses could follow. So one would be, you know, what happened in 1918, where most of the deaths happened to young adults. And then the second one would be something where um, it's more of the older population and the weak. And so basically, it can get people of any health status because there's one for everybody. So we mentioned this previously because it, you know, all of this comes back to the same idea of how if the world can't function because of a virus, production and business stops and then our economy suffers and then, you know, the human population suffers in other ways besides their health. If there was a virus that occurred, something that may happen as a secondary effect is China not being able to um, make as much of the products that they do because 30 to 40 percent of the workforce is sick, let's say. And then we don't have a stockpile of goods just waiting. So then it's like a domino effect in which, you know, our world trade suffers and then the economies just shut down. In addition to the economy, our healthcare system would definitely take a hit because in 2017, we didn't have the amount of, you know, masks or any kind of PPE like that, that we needed to properly fight a pandemic like this. Also, we would have to deal with problems like triage because of this lack of resources or these lack of resources. And, um, you know, it, we're going to have to make some tough decisions that no one really wants to do. So to illustrate this, Dr. Osterholm gives an example. And he says, what if the severe cases of influenza went up by 30%? And so now the hospitals are already over capacity. And then 1% of those are critical influenza victims who need ventilators. So we can handle that, he says. But if 3% of these patients need ventilators, then we don't have the machinery in the entire country. So it's not like we can import some from another state because we just don't even have it in the country. And another country doesn't even have it either. So it's not like we can import it from somewhere else. And even if they did, would they lend it to us? Because if we're having something this bad here, then maybe they would be thinking, like if we have a flu, 
influenza pandemic here, they might think that what if they need it for whatever comes up in their country? And so maybe they won't be willing to lend it to us. Or maybe they already have something going on at the same time or they're already in use. And so because we don't have the correct machinery, a lot of people would just die because they weren't able to get the correct treatment due to the lack of resources. And when I read this, I immediately thought of COVID-19. So during the summer of 2020 uh, with COVID-19, the U.S. was having a shortage of ventilators and we were trying to we were trying to get them from other states when a certain state didn't have enough um and there was like a worldwide shortage i'm pretty sure because everyone it was a worldwide global it is a worldwide global pandemic and everybody needs the ventilators and so here's a stat i just pulled up so one study says that the U.S. acute care hospitals own apparently 62,000 full-feature mechanical ventilators before the pandemic started. And so I'm sure that we manufactured a bit more afterward. But before the pandemic started, we had 62,000. And 28,883 of these ventilators, so about half, are used to ventilate pediatric and neonatal patients. And so for COVID-19 specifically, this isn't that helpful because most of the patients affected are uh, the elderly and so it's not like a pediatric or neonatal ventilator is going to help these patients. In addition to these ventilators there are about 98,000 ventilators that aren't full feature but have the basic functions so if there were a crisis or something this could be used but it wouldn't have the same uh, capabilities as the 62,000 full featured ones. And even with all this, we were having shortages. The rate of hospitalization was cited to be 19%, with 26 to 32% going to the ICU, which is 5 to 6% total. And so these numbers are probably just rising as the number of patients who have COVID are rising, right? Right. And so basically, we can assume that if we already haven't run out of ventilators, in the space in the intensive care units, then we will soon. And so basically what I'm trying to say is that the U.S. isn't prepared to handle, like Dr. Osterholm was saying earlier, that we aren't prepared to handle something where 3% of people need ventilators. And right now we are in the middle of something where we might not be able to handle it. And we're like seeing exactly what he said before. And also, we said how if we need ventilators from other countries and they're using it or they aren't able to give it to us, then we're in trouble. It's the same thing with a lot of medications, which Dr. Osterholm called essential need to sustain life. Can't wait until tomorrow drugs. So basically, some of these include insulin for type 1 diabetics, LASIK for congestive heart failure, norepinephrine for severe hypotension, albutrol for open airways and lungs, and things like that. 100% of these drugs were generic, and they're from China and India, and we buy the generic brands. And so if something happened in India or China or 
we weren't able to get it from them. We don't have a good amount of these medications stocked up where we can take it and not be vulnerable. And next, Dr. Osterholm talks about how the population since 1918 has tripled, and so have, and uh, the amount of annual global poultry meat production has also just increased along with the amount of swine produced. And so altogether, the bird, the pigs, and human contact has just increased. And so this is basically helping increase the um, influenza virus evolution process. And the viruses of H5 and H7 subtypes are the greatest concern, and that's because they can cause mild to severe illness in poultry populations. And so this doesn't just affect us because of the potential of a virus forming, but because, or a virus like spreading to humans, but also it can affect the livelihood of a lot of farmers. And this would just have a lot of effect on the economy. Pigs can get infected with the viruses, but they rarely will show symptoms. However, it's important to remember that they have the receptors for both avian influenza virus strains and human influenza virus strains. So simultaneously, different virus strains can uh, enter the pig, uh, bind to receptors, and then there could be antigenic shift, which is when they might come together to form a completely new strain, which can be dangerous for humans. So hearing that, we might think that people would try to stay away from pigs, but Maybe this is different, but a lot of people have pet pigs recently, and I just don't really understand the appeal, first of all. And also, it I, whenever someone mentioned the swine flu, I just thought it was something that couldn't come back just like that. But if all pigs have the ability to take in multiple types of viruses because of their receptors, then I think it's pretty dangerous to have a pet pig. That's just my opinion. <laughs> No, yeah, I actually have a funny story around the time of the swine flu. I guess it, I, I mean, I don't remember the exact time frame, but I remember it being Thanksgiving and maybe it was still a prominent problem at this point. So I was at my uncle's house and I was a little kid, right? Um, had to be like seven or eight years old. And um, I remember my older cousins being like, you know, trying to scare me and being because there was like ham we were eating. So I remember them being like, oh, yeah, you're going to get the swine flu from this. And I was so scared. I don't remember if I cried, but I was definitely like in- extremely afraid. And I didn't eat ham that Thanksgiving. So that's so scary. Now we're on to chapter 19, which is titled Pandemic from Unspeakable to Inevitable. It's mid-April. Influenza should be on the wane in China. Hundreds of patients are coming into the emergency rooms presenting with conditions that seem to be like influenza, um, except it's not really the same. Doctors don't seem to have seen this before. A lot of patients are suffering from acute respiratory distress syndrome. Uh, The hospitals are quickly filling with patients like this, and the infrastructure cannot hold on. The sputum samples of patients are analyzed, and it is found to contain H7N9 influenza. H7N9 is an avian virus that 
first originated in 2013, but now it seems to have come back stronger than ever. About a third of those contracting the disease are dying, and quickly cases begin to show up all over the world, even before China gets the chance to report the mayhem that's occurring. There's no point in closing borders. H7N9 has probably taken root in about 30 to 40 countries by now. Reason being, all you need for transmission is just to have someone breathe on you. It could be in a mall, in an airplane, in a subway, or even an ER. Even us and Ria's ER. Oh, yeah. Two terrorist groups take credit for creating this strain, but Homeland Security is quickly able to verify that there is no evidence of this. The public is quick to call this the Shanghai flu, except in China, where it's referred to as the Western flu. Quickly, the WHO declares the situation as a global emergency. Citizens are beginning to really worry, wondering what's going on, how are we going to stop it, are we all going to be okay? After doing some genetic analysis, it seems that antigenic shift has occurred in which two viral strains have come together to create a completely new virus. Fortunately, it is not resistant to antiviral drugs, so Tamiflu and Relenza are being grabbed out of the stores where they can, but pretty much it's quickly gone, and even with 24-7 production of Tamiflu and Relenza, they cannot meet the demands of society. Quickly, companies begin to develop a vaccine against this strain because the way it is is that no previous infection of influenza gives immunity, so everyone is fair game. Pharmaceutical companies claim that a vaccine should be out in about five plus months, and most people cannot wait that long, but there's no choice. Now, six weeks have passed, 72 countries have been reporting cases, and it has begun to cause problems within manufacturing and the economy. For example, in China, a bunch of factories are shut down, and people all over the world are afraid to buy chicken or pork in fear that they may contain this virus, and thus as a result, beef prices skyrocket as the demand for this increases. The healthcare infrastructure also suffers as many healthcare workers are too sick to come into work and the other half are afraid to come into work from fear of catching the virus. Patients are demanding antibiotic prescriptions despite the fact that they will have no effect on this virus. So both N95 masks and respirators along with syringes, needles, antiseptics, diagnostic test kits and etc. are not available for use. So the black market increases their activity and sales of antiviral drugs and anything of the like. Mistrust grows of the pharmaceutical company. And in Germany, a CEO of one of the international pharmaceutical companies, corporations is shot outside of his home, even though his company does not even produce any vaccines or antivirals. Many other murders of physicians and pharmacists are taking place because it is rumored that they have supplies of the drugs but are not giving them to the public. Patients are urged to stay home as if they have symptoms, they don't want to risk spreading it to more people. So instead, there are there is a designated phone number to call that is a 24-hour hotline where people can talk about their symptoms and see if they require medical attention before actually seeking so. 
the stock market crashes, drops by 50%. Attendance to public events have declined. A lot of public events are canceled. And there is an unemployment rate of 25%. It hasn't been this bad since the Great Depression. Food supplies get tight. There are a lot of break-ins in stores. India works on a vaccine, but within the manufacturing process, they realize that it has been contaminated with the bacteria and they must start from scratch. And unfortunately, most of the world's population will never even have an opportunity to get vaccinated. And so by the first week of July, the casualty rate, it starts to go down and the hospitals are only recording a few cases and the stock market starts to climb. And despite this, there is still a few trillion dollars of worldwide gross product that we lost. And about 1,932,000 of those people died, so about a 6% fatality rate. And so the president says, or the president declares that August 1st is going to be a day of reflection and we're going to celebrate all the people who survived and commemorate the ones that died and the great heroism and personal sacrifice of all people who suffered through whatever disease this was. But public health leaders tell the president that we should postpone the celebration. There could be a second wave, and so the second wave could actually exceed the number of cases and deaths that occurred in the first wave. And the second wave could last longer than the first wave, too. So influenza starts disappearing from the news, and people start forgetting about it. And then in late September, there are new cases that start showing up. And the antigen tests confirm that it's the H7N9 influenza. So, and so basically that means the outbreaks that happened in Cairo, Egypt, Lahore, and Pakistan were not flukes. And so there are a series of conference calls, including the Public Health Service, the CDC, the HHS, the NIH, and the FDA, and the Department of defense, etc. And they all coordinate plans to get the Shanghai flu vaccine distributed through the country. And so they first say that healthcare workers, first responders, and critical government employees like firefighters and police should get the vaccine first. When clinics are set up to distribute these vaccines shortly after, they're overrun by people because word leaked out that these Clinics have the vaccines and people want to get it first. And the police are unable to control this chaos because they are already short-staffed because of the cases in their own ranks. And so there are outbreaks of violence all across the United States. And so the U.S. vaccine supply increases. And by late October, it's not clear how much is available, but it's not going to be enough for the amount of people that need it. And so the government officials decide that Large parking facilities, shopping centers, stadiums are ideal places for vaccinating people. And even with precaution with state and local police units, when the vaccine does arrive, there's masses of people who are ready to get it. And so the crowd gets violent and a lot of people are injured. The public health emergency of international concern doesn't really have advice for people other than to stay away from those who are infected. And so it's said that 4 to 6% of people who contract the Shanghai flu in the Western nations are going to die. So that's the mortality rate. 
but in developing nations, it's going to be much higher because the healthcare systems have been broken down and broken into. And so in these places and in places such as Central Africa, there are a lot of preventable childhood diseases like tuberculosis that are out of control because there is a lack of basic medical care and public health services. The U.S. has another round of product shortages. First, it's saline bags and disposable syringes, both which are very important. And then other basic life-saving drugs start to dwindle. The American Diabetes Association says that for the second time in four months, they don't have enough insulin stocks. And so unless it's resupplied, a lot more people are going to die. So hospitals have to push aside unnecessary surgeries and just focus on the biggest priority or highest priority ones. All the mechanical ventilators in the United States are in use, but only a small minority can be treated with these. A lot of people die, especially the elderly. And healthy men and women in their prime suffer from exaggerated immune system reactions. So health authorities are recommending that women postpone pregnancies because they are also at very high risk. There are food shortages and a lot of stores are getting looted. There's a lot of vandalism, violence. The governors are calling the National Guard to control these large protests and everything that's going on because of the lack of resources. The New York subway system is basically shut down and the streets are gridlocked with private cars. There are dangerous levels of air pollution and there's a daily loss of productivity because no one can go out. And the world stock that was starting to go up plunges down again. And the American unemployment rate reaches 22% which is three points below that of 1933, which was the worst year of the Great Depression. Morgues are overflowing with bodies because everyone in every major city is dying. Developing countries are cremating corpses in large ditches that are immediately covered up. So in the United States and in first world regions, the morgues have to use freezer trucks, but then there are electricity and fuel shortages. A lot of uh, TV evangelists of the right wing are saying that the Shanghai flu is God's punishment for straying from his ways. The American president and other leaders of the G7 nations release a statement saying that the H7N9 pandemic is the moral equivalent of a war. The major street cities, the streets of major cities are closed empty and stores and restaurants and entertainment venues are all closed vaccine stocks are continuing to go up gradually but are quickly getting used because of the people and the demand is still high by the following june the pandemic has basically run its course the worldwide death toll from the two waves is about 360 million and there are about 2.22 billion total cases. The average age of people who died is 37. Though in terms of raw morbidity and mortality statistics, the Shanghai influenza pandemic is the largest catastrophe 
in world history. Now, you might be thinking, when did that happen in our history? Well, it was actually a fictional story, but it could very well potentially occur. And that's what Dr. Osterholm and Mark Olshaker was try- were trying to highlight when they put this in their book. Basically, they wanted, they actually um, presented this situation. They actually presented this situation to the SIDRAP because it is something that they do called tabletop exercises in which they're giving given scenarios like this involving an influenza pandemic and then I guess they just try and talk about you know everything that may occur and how they could probably prevent it Um, I know we just kind of went through it we thought it would be fun to do that first for you guys and now I think we're going to go back and just highlight some parts that stood out to each of us on 221, the thing that stood out to me was when um, it said that it's referred to as the Shanghai flu by the whole world, except in China, where they call it the Western flu. So I just thought this part was funny. It goes back to kind of what we talked about earlier in this season about how a lot of times people just want to pick a country to take fault for it. And it's funny how, um, I mean, not to say that it was China's fault. I don't think it was anyone's fault. It's just that it happened in China. And yet China wanted to say that it happened in the the Western part of the world. So I just thought it was funny how um, everyone wants to rid themselves of the blame. And then other people want to put the blame on other people. Right. That's basically what happened with the 1918 flu as well. Because we call it the Spanish flu. But it didn't even, it possibly didn't even start in Spain. It probably started in the United States. And then also when um, it was mentioned that this fictional strain was not resistant to antivirals, I immediately thought, wow, this is pretty fortunate. And I should probably, like in real life right now, should be stocking up with these two medications. If it doesn't require prescription, I have no idea. Um, I don't think I've ever taken a antiviral before, but... Uh, definitely something to stock up on, I think, if Dr. Osterholm is so sure about this occurring in the future. What stood out to me is that patients were demanding antibiotic prescriptions, even though they're completely useless against the virus. And so after this whole thing has run its course, are there going to be more antibiotic-resistant diseases that spring up because so many people are taking unnecessary antibiotics? That's actually good that you pointed that out because I could definitely see that happening. And I thought it was interesting that syringes, needles, antiseptics, diagnostic test kits, and all those simple things weren't considered for or weren't included in the emergency list because they seem like the basic things you would want. It does say that um, they, they're not even included in the emergency list for things to, for people to make. Which I think, especially with the diagnostic test kits, at least in COVID-19, we ran out of those, or we were having an issue with it. The Surgeon General going on TV and telling people to stay home, not burn hospitals, I thought that was pretty similar to what happened with COVID, um, especially in New York, when they were saying stay home if you have mild symptoms. Yeah, I wonder what reading all of this would have felt like before COVID-19. Like, I wonder if we would have been shocked to hear, wow, like, 
we're not going to have enough like supplies or if we're going to say there's no way this is going to happen or like I'm sure that's what people did say um but it's interesting to read now afterwards yeah in hindsight it seems possible just because we experienced a smaller version of this or are experiencing but if you showed me this last year before covid really took off then i would have said this wouldn't happen because why wouldn't we be able to manage something with the death rate or mortality rate that's so low and why would hospitals get overrun why wouldn't people just listen on the next page what caught my eye was the unemployment rate of 25 percent or it actually says above 25 percent um which is insanely high like we mentioned that's what it was during the great depression which means and just to put this into better perspective for you, one out of every four people, like I know that's obvious, 25%, but when you think about it like that, one out of four people are unemployed. Um, and another way to put it into perspective is that right now during COVID-19, or not right now, but at the height of um, the worst unemployment rate throughout this pandemic, it was at 14.7%. And on the next page, what really caught my eye is that the president proposed a day to celebrate the fact that the nation came together and survived a great challenge since World War II. And not saying that we went through a similar thing, but after our first wave of COVID-19, there was this feeling of accomplishment or like we defeated something even though the cases are still there. They're just very low. And because people have just started going out again, we got a second wave that is worse than the first one, it seems. Crazy how uh, everything is so predictable. Yeah, and it's like that thing we talked about a couple of chapters ago where it's like overacting or acting proactively will always be met with, did I overreact or did I overact? But if you don't act fast enough, it's, I wish we acted more. And that's what an epidemiologist has to go through. Right, especially because the total number of cases in the U.S. in this hypothetical situation sat at 31 million, which is 9% of the population. And then for us, it's 23 million and with deaths at 382,000, while in the fictional situation, it was 1.9 million we didn't experience the same same scale of infection and death as in this scenario, but still bad, obviously. And I think I heard today, today from an NBC recording, um, news recording, that it's about... Hopefully with the vaccine coming out soon, this will all die down. But then he talks about the vaccine. What I found interesting here is that the first line of defense basically our doctors nurses police officers firefighters are getting the vaccine in phase one and that's exactly what's happening in COVID-19 so I think this is standard practice which makes sense um and then unlike here where people are running to get vaccinated with COVID-19 a lot of people are still unsure whether they want the vaccine or not because it was created in such a short amount of time and so they don't trust it entirely. But I think what makes it different is the fact that this disease seems to have 
this hypothetical disease seems to be a lot more deadly and people seem to understand the severity a lot more. Whereas with COVID-19, that might not necessarily be the case. Uh, yeah, I also found it interesting how Dr. Osterholm never mentioned anything about anti-vaxxers. But I'm sure, deadly or not, I feel like there's always going to be that group. And so even in this scenario, they probably should have been mentioned. Uh, I just have one more. The morgues overflowing with the bodies. That's uh, And people run, like cremating the corpses in large ditches. I know we saw a lot of that in Iran, I think. There were mass burials. I don't think they were cremating. I'm not sure. Uh, in the beginning, or when COVID was really terrible over there. And morgues are overflowing. The first wave morgues are overflowing. And now currently, I think we're getting back up there with the the death toll per day going up. That's one of those things where you see that happening and it kind of breaks your heart a little because it's like, man, look at all the destruction that's happening. Right, especially because a lot of people see a funeral, like a proper funeral as like the last respectful thing you could do for a person. And so when you can't give that to someone, it's definitely heartbreaking. So thanks for tuning in this week, and we hope you tune in next week for our season finale. It's been a fun journey so far, and we hope you guys are there for the end. Bye, guys. Bye.